and welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, your Guys Guy, welcoming you to the show. It is Tuesday night, November 22nd, 2016, where we've got a great show for you. Our special guest this evening is a, a former Vietnam POW, Robert Weidman, and he wrote an excellent book called Unexpected Prisoner, Memoir of a Vietnam POW. He's going to be on here in a few minutes. I know he's waiting on the line. We'll get him on. And uh, looking forward to that because I've gone through the book over the last couple of weeks. And it's a, it's a lot of surprises in it, a lot of surprises. And, you, you know, the whole thing with the whole guys, guys movement is about better men, better world. When men and women can be at their best, everyone wins. And uh, Robert tells an interesting tale because, uh, you know, you've seen so many of these war movies and POW movies. And you have certain expectations about all the Americans banding together and finding some ways to kind of outsmart their captors and all of that. This is a different take on it. And I was very surprised and I'm very intrigued by it. And I, I admire Robert for uh, serving our country and going through what he went through for us. And also just the fact that he's so honest, honest and authentic about his experience. Uh, He doesn't pull any punches. So he's a real guy's guy and I can't wait to get him on here. So let's just real quickly, uh, just talk about where we are today. Uh, it's Tuesday before Thanksgiving. I know everybody's going to be traveling tomorrow. Safe travels, everybody. Uh, we're already into the moving towards the holiday season. I'm sure you've all gotten emails about moving up Black Friday to <laughs> to Tuesday. And uh, it's just the season where the U.S. economy, which is two-thirds run on consumer spending, just gets shopping. So I hope you've sorted out in your mind what you're going to get your friends and relatives for the holidays. And I hope you get home and enjoy Thanksgiving, which, you know, traditionally has been that one holiday where it's the first time you've gotten the whole family together in a while. And it's all built around food and football. And uh, it's not about the presents and it's not about Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or Three Kings or whatever. It's just about getting together, seeing everybody that you haven't seen for a while and enjoying some great food and maybe watching a couple of the games or, or not. And, uh, you know, it's interesting now, my wife and I, uh, we are pescatarians, I guess you'd call it. We don't eat meat. We do eat fish. We have a three-year-old son. We let him eat meat as he, as he wants to. But, uh, you know, we're going to my mom's, uh, down the Jersey shore and, uh, there's going to be a big turkey there, but, we have to figure out what we're going to do, either eat side dishes or bring something on our own. Uh, so Thanksgiving is not what it used to be. And I really loved turkey and I loved meat, but I gave it up eight years ago. And you know what? Uh, I never looked back because uh, meat is not what it was when I grew up. The, you know, the factory farming, the gas house, uh, the gaseous, uh, excuse me, the greenhouse gases, the horrible treatment of the animals, the fact that they eat GMOs, steroids, Prozac, and all the stress that goes into how they're just utterly destroyed throughout their lives, psychologically and then physically. And then humans consume that. And I posted a couple of things on that on Facebook. And it's interesting that, and you know, how anything you put up in Facebook, somebody has a contrarian view and people are pretty snarky. But it's like, oh, well, we have sharp teeth and we're made to eat meat and all that. But it, you know what, folks? I loved eating meat. But you don't have to eat meat. You get a sources of, there's plenty of sources of protein. 
It's been proven that a plant-based diet is better for you. If you enjoy the meat, that's fine. I suggest that you go organic. Don't eat too much meat. And uh, again, keep focusing on the plant-based diet. I have so many, I'm a boomer. I have so many of my friends that uh, have not adapted whatsoever as they've gotten older. They still drink as much as they drank. They still eat everything they ate before. They don't, you know, they're trying to get their wives, frankly, or helping them get into organic and all of that. But they don't realize the, what they're walking into. Right around this time, two years ago, I had the second of two robotic surgeries on my kidneys. I had been out running. I'm a runner. And uh, I was out running the two summers ago. And I had a tremendous pain on my left side. And I went out to, uh, uh, you know, after the, after the run, it was a six, actually it was a 10-mile run down the Jersey Shore on the boardwalk from Ocean Grove down to Belmar and back into Asbury Park. And uh, I was just in unbelievable, off the charts, come to Jesus type of pain. And, uh, you know, even if you're not religious, when you get to the point where you're in such an utter state of despair and pain and it's endless, you will pray. <laughs> and uh, I went to the doctor when I got, and it was on a 4th of July weekend when I got home, I went to the doctor's office. I, the pain subsided after six hours. I had a, another bout the next day. And I had a CAT scan done uh, and they said, okay, you know, we found you have a, you have a kidney stone, but also we found a growth, uh, small growth in each of your kidneys. And we want to cut those out robotically. The bad news is you have an each kidney. The good news is that we cut these out. Now there's a 98% chance you'll never have to deal with this again. I asked, well, what caused it? You know, in Western medicine, you don't get answers. They're like, we don't know. It's sporadic. Don't smoke, they said. I said, okay, I don't. Well, they said, well, let's set this up. And so I did. I went in on a September, a day in September, and I had one side done. And then I came back in November. I had the other side done. And then since then, I've had a couple of MRIs, a couple of ultrasounds. And, uh, and I'm running better than ever. But... I learned it reiterated in my mind the fact that you really have to, when you get a little bit older, you have to, you can't just do exactly, in my opinion, you can't just do exactly what you've done the way you've done it. No cutting back whatsoever on partying, indulging, meat, sex, whatever it is. You have to like take a step back and say, I'm going to listen to my body and treat it better because you you know, I believe that we are souls living in a body. We're not bodies harboring a soul. And if that's the case, if we are souls living in a body, it's on us to take care of our bodies as best we can. Because in today's society, in today's culture, particularly Western culture, there's so much stress, there's so much fear mongering that it's really tough to keep yourself healthy. So I do my best. I suggest to all my listeners and readers that they do the same thing. Now, before I get into quickly the guy's guy's guide of the week, let me just say that uh, you can catch all of our podcasts, blog talk rate on blog talk radio guys, guys radio has had over 200 podcasts now and going strong. And I'm booked through January of next year. And we have guests lined up 
to get on the show, and it's fantastic. I'm really thrilled. And podcasting has really taken off now. Unfortunately, I've had the opportunity to work with so many ter- terrific guests and terrific people and learn from them over the last couple of years. And now, I'm, now I've kind of honed my craft. I, I continue to hone it, but I've had the opportunity to talk to so many people and really kind of get better at interviewing and learning from them. And it's a pleasure for me to get the word out there for our guests. And I, I can't wait to get Robert on here. I hope he's patient. You he can give me just one more minute while I just take you through the Guys, Guys, Guys. So my uh, podcast, Guys, Guys Radio, is on Blog Talk Radio. It's on iTunes. It's on Stitcher. And it's on TuneIn Radio. All for free. You can download them, subscribe whenever you want. My website is called robertmanny, M-A-N-N-I.com. I do a new in-depth blog post every week. There's lots of videos on there, uh, media stuff, lots of things. My Twitter is at Robert Manny. You can hook, hit me up on Facebook, Robert Manny Author. Or if you want to just personally hit me up, that's fine too. Robert Manny, M-A-N-N-I, YouTube, Robert Manny Author. And it all started when I wrote this novel called The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love, which uh, iconic 20th century author Dan Wakefield called the the men's successor to sex in the city. And uh, I'm very proud of the book. It's gotten spectacular reviews and people are being super supportive. And uh, I've got a screenplay that I'm shopping now uh, as an adaptation of the novel, as well as a TV series, scripted TV. We've got the pilot episode and we've got a, uh, a treatment and we're getting that out there also. So fingers crossed, hopefully good things will happen. And in the meantime, we're on episode uh, podcast 202, I believe, with Robert Weidman. So let's just quickly talk about the Guys, Guys, Guide for this week is about Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, a lot of times in life we find that um, things that we really want might not necessarily be what is the best thing for us. And that's why we need to be able to be appreciative. I start every morning and I say to myself, I am aligned to truth and I want to eliminate any falsehoods, anything that's really about my truth that connects myself to the source so I can have the most beneficial experience uh, to my day. And as part of that, I found that a lot of things that I thought I wanted and I did want may not have been the best thing for me. And think of it for yourself too, that job that you wanted so badly and you didn't get that girl that you dated and you wanted so badly to, to work out and it didn't. And so many other things where you thought, this is it. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. And then when you look back when it didn't happen, maybe it turned out to be a good thing because another door opened. I know for myself, I had been hungry for a lot of different women and I waited and waited and waited to get married. And I finally met the right woman for myself. I got married later in life, but it's worked out and I couldn't be more delighted. And uh, it's just part of learning to let go and learning not to be so locked into and clinging on to the outcome because that can really block you. So anyhow, that's my guys, guys, guys of the week. My, my Thanksgiving post is going to be published tomorrow and it'll be up on Twitter on our Facebook and at Robert Manny, M-A-N-N-I.com. So I thank my audience for supporting me. I thank my guests for educating me. And I thank my listeners for being so wonderful and just being there with me. I feel your energy and thanks a lot. So let's talk about our, uh, 
our guest tonight, and we'll bring him right on. His name is his name is Robert Weidman. He was a pilot during the Vietnam War, and he had a crash, uh, and he became prisoner of war for six years. And he's going to talk to us about his remarkable experience and discuss his new book called Unexpected Prisoner and explores his struggle with his em- enemies, but also with his comrades uh, and the Vietnamese interrogators and the American commanders, uh, the dreams he's lost, uh, maybe some things he learned about himself. And also uh, it's about spirituality also because he was not a religious guy when he went into, uh, into this situation. And I think he came out of it a different man. And I would say that's a spiritual experience. So let's bring on a true American hero, Robert Weidman. Robert, are you there? I am here, Robert, and I enjoyed your running story. Uh, I did the Father's Day 5K. Uh, took me an hour. Uh, uh-huh. I used to be able to do that in 24 minutes. So uh, I, I believe that my running career is over, but I'm resurrecting uh, my bicycle and hiking career out here in you know, Colorado. You know something, uh, you know, that's well stated because one of the things, you know, I was talking about like uh, when guys uh, age a little bit, we have to really be a little bit smarter about how we work out. And I love to run and I run the six mile loop around Central Park every week. And it's uh, it's all hills and it's really tough. And then I run 10 mile runs when I'm down the Jersey shore. But what I find is that, you know, I've been fortunate. The pounding hasn't really taken its toll, but I'm now, you know, I used to run 12 months of the year. I'd run in the rain. I'd run in the snow. I'd run on the ice. And now I don't. The ground gets frozen. I'm inside on the elliptical. If I don't feel right, I'm inside on the elliptical. If I need to take a day off because my body says, Hey, give me a break. I do it. Uh, do you agree? Do you agree? I do agree. Okay. Let's get into your uh, experience because I have to tell you, Robert, I wrote down, first of all, you're an American hero because you served our country and then you served admirably as a POW. And I want to just say I have the utmost respect for you. Um, Secondly, I wrote down more questions to ask you than for any guest I've ever had on my podcast. So I hope you'll be patient with me and let me kind of run through them. Um, Let's start. Let's start out for the audience. Just tell us in a nutshell, kind of what happened to you, how you became a POW during the Vietnam War. Well, it was my 134th mission, and it was a beautiful day, no clouds, unlimited visibility. You can see the uh, aircraft carriers awake in the Tonkin Gulf. It's about 125 miles away. And uh, no enemy defenses, uh, no MiGs, no SAMs, no AAA. We rolled in on a barge. Uh, We were at 11,000 feet. As we rolled out, I felt a metallic click, and the plane kept on rolling. And the next thing I know, we passed 6,000 feet. And at those dive angles and airspeeds, if you're not out by 6,000 feet, you won't make it. So I pulled the face curtain, and uh, I heard the wind as the canopy left, and then it felt like something hit me in the head with a baseball bat. I saw stars. And then then I was just trying to hold my arms and legs to keep from flailing, and I could see the ground between my legs and the sky and the ground and the sky seemed like 20 seconds uh, before the parachute opened. It was actually uh, less than two. And when the parachute opened, I felt nothing. And I looked around and I had two arms. I had two legs ahead. And most importantly, I was alive. Mm -hmm. Uh, I could see the Tonkin Gulf about two miles away, the coast and thought to myself, you know, it was beautiful. You could hear a pin drop up there. 
And then I thought about my wife, my family, and I, you know, said to myself, man, this is a, this is an awful place to be. And it was just where, you know, you were very close to, uh, you know, getting out of service. So it must've been, uh, you know, something that was like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe this has happened. What, what actually happened to your plane where you heard the click and you had to eject yourself? What, what, what happened? What was wrong with the plane? Uh, I, you know, to this day, I really don't know. But since there was no uh, enemy defenses, I, and I've talked to some people, uh, it's probably a complete hydraulic failure because it has mm-hmm. the same characteristics. You know, your, your controls just lock up. The stick was all the way to the left, and I couldn't get it back to the center. So it was probably a hydraulic failure. Okay. So now you, you parachute down, and you're in kind of, you know, one of those fielded areas, and uh You've got the soldiers come in and then you have to deal with the soldiers and the locals and the soldiers have to protect you from the locals. And then you kind of got transported in a lot of different places, kind of moving slowly towards uh, what's was called the Hanoi Hilton. Tell us a little bit about exactly. that process. Uh, well, uh, you know, the mountains were, were probably about six miles away and I landed and I could see there was a soldier there, uh, about 50 feet from me, his eyeballs were about the size of baseballs, which meant mine were about the size of basketballs. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I showed him what he wanted to see. My, I just turned my hands up, and uh, he dropped his arms, and all the villagers rushed me. And they gathered me up, and uh, we went to a hut, and he blindfolded me and sat me down. And, uh, you know, the rescue planes came in for about 45 minutes, and, and, and they got shot at a lot. I found out later they, were, they, they took a good deal of battle damage. And then they went away, and I got unblindfolded, and we started walking to the foothills about six miles to the west. We had to go through about a half a dozen villages, and every village of the villagers that come out with sticks and stones, rocks, and they try to beat me up. But amazingly, those six guards I was with crisscrossed their weapons uh, over the top of my head. And you won't believe it, but they got beat up more than I did. Uh, I thought they were very professional. Uh, but there was no doubt in my mind if the soldiers weren't there, uh, those villagers would have lynched me. Mm-hmm. And at any rate, we made it to the foothills, and uh, I got my first meal, and you, you, you guessed it, fish heads and rice. And then the, the sun went down, the trucks came out, and they were heading south every uh, 50 to 100 yards at about 5, uh, five 10 miles an hour. And it was really distressing because uh, they did that for an hour and 40 minutes. Then you could hear some airplanes coming in. So the trucks would stop. The lights would turn out. First plane drop a flare. Uh, second plane would drop the bomb. They would head back to the ship. The planes would. And then the lights would, on the trucks would come on, and they'd head south again for another, hundred, another hour and 40 minutes. And what was distressing was just a few months before that on the ship, some admirals showed up and said, we're stopping 98% of the supplies. Mm-hmm. Well, if we were stopping 2%, we're doing really good. And at any rate, they tossed me in one of those trucks, and we headed south for 30 minutes, got out, blindfolded me. We walked for about 30 minutes, and we came to a hut. And that was the first night I got interrogated. And uh, and then, uh, you know, they just wanted to break me. I got hung up on, on the city. I wouldn't tell them where I was from Cleveland, Ohio. And they broke me. And uh, then it was just, uh, you know, it was a week of, uh, you know, well, what do you think of the Cleveland Indians and the Cleveland Browns and all that kind of stuff? One thing that was kind of funny, uh, he asked me if I had children. I said no. And the interrogator, I called Soupy Sales because he had a baseball hat on sideways. He's about mm-hmm. 65 years yeah. old. He's about 65 years old with a goatee. Uh, 
He had. Uh, he said he had one child. Well, I found out from my next roommate who had two children that old Sufi had had three children. So no matter uh, who you were, your interrogator always had uh, one more child than you did. Well, at any rate, you. they tossed me. In... Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Please go ahead. Yeah. At any rate, they tossed me in the truck uh, with Mike McCutcheon. I didn't know who he was at the time, and we headed north. It took us four days to get to Hanoi. Uh, the first uh, the first night, I about froze to death because it rained and. And we got out the next morning. We, we'd stay in the villages during the day. We'd travel at night. And uh, the first place we stayed at, I looked up there, and I could see these three big pictures on the inside of this bamboo hut. Uh, one was Ho Chi Minh. He looked like your uncle. Uh, they had Mao Zedong. He was in color. had a big picture of Lenin. And then on the side of the door, there's a small, maybe an 8 by 10 uh, color picture. And it was Jesus Christ on the cross. And... The thing that amazed me, and, and, and you know, forget my uh, politically incorrectness here, but Jesus was a gook in that picture. He had dark hair, a goatee, brown skin, slanted eyes. But the thing that blew me away was this was a communist country, and we were, I was told ever since I was, you know, old enough to go to school, elementary school, that uh, the communists don't believe in religion and all that stuff. So that, that had a major impact on me. At any rate, uh, we got to Hanoi. Uh, one night we got bombed, and if we had to make that trip uh, four times. I wouldn't have made it once. Uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, we probably would have got bombed by our own airplanes. But I uh, got to Hanoi on the uh, 19th of, of May. What do you think that, um, in retrospect, what were your captors with uh, the different interrogations and you had a lot of good cop, bad types, cops stopped going out. What were they? What were they after? Because it seemed like they knew a lot of the information already. They just wanted to see if you would kind of fess up to it. They knew everything. Uh, the uh, that, so what were that they after? Time I got wrapped, pardon. What 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 were they after then? If they knew you knew, if they knew everything you knew, what what was the purpose of their? You know what? What were they trying to get out of you? I think they just wanted to break us because, uh, you know, the the American is uh, what uh, six foot tall, and the and the Vietnamese is uh, four and a half feet tall, mm-hmm. and 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 I, I think they just wanted us to behave like like captives. Everything they asked us, they knew the questions. I found out the hard way uh, that they knew certain frequencies to the decimal point on our identification, friend or foe. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a lot of the POWs say uh, they did all this stuff for propaganda. Well, the truth of the matter is uh, 95% of the people, according to General Reisner, made confessions. But, you know, they didn't publish those confessions. There might have been two or three of them during the Vietnam War. So if they aren't going to publish all these confessions where we confess that, uh, you know, Johnson was a war criminal and we bombed hospitals and women and children, uh, where's the propaganda? You know, so that was that was kind of a puzzle for me. You know, I always wondered, and, and please take this respectfully because it's meant that way. But sure. you know, my, my dad was uh, served in World War II, and he said, you know, tor- torture doesn't work because people will say anything. And you mentioned in your book that all, all the guys, all, you know, everybody just gave up what they had to give up. At some point, you'd play some games with these captors, and then eventually you'd give them up the information you had, but they already knew it. My question is. You know, if I want to get information out of somebody, instead of this long, drawn-out, back-and-forth psychological thing, you know, there's so many physical things you could do to somebody 
that would get them talking really fast. Why don't they just do that if they want to get information? Well, uh, uh, the rope trick they put us in, uh, basically they, they, they put manacles on your wrists and they put behind your no, back. I, I, horrible. But, you could, I, I mean, yeah. could, couldn't, and, and, couldn't they have done it like really – like take that and multiply it by ten. I mean, you just you can imagine the things they could have done to you, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you you. I mean, look what's going on in the Middle East now. Uh, right. uh, the the they're they're taking power drills and putting them through people's elbows and knees mm-hmm. and shoulders. You know, uh, man, if these people want you to talk, you're going to talk. Right. Uh, but uh, they, uh, you know, they just, I'll tell you, it's kind of funny, you know, I never heard of waterboarding until a few years ago. And God, I wish they'd have waterboarded me instead of put me in the ropes, because uh, with the ropes, uh, some people mm-hmm. took a couple hours. Uh, it, with me, it probably took about 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But uh, I've talked, or I've, I've seen some people uh, uh, with the waterboarding uh, confess that they says, yeah, man, it was like, it was like six seconds and they were talking, you know. Uh, I'd have loved to have gone through that instead of, uh, you know, going through the rope trick. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, my understanding is part of what uh, they can do to get people to talk, or whether it's foreign captors or U.S. guys, whatever, just say, you know, we're going to do stuff to your family, and or we're going to say that you talked. So you might as well talk, because we're going to tell everybody you talked, and then there's a target on you. I just, I'm always yeah, like... threatening our threatening our families was... Uh, that was never really an issue. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, if they wanted information, they just put you in the ropes and you can't breathe. Your shoulders feel like they're going to pop out of joint. You know, you get claustrophobic. And 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 and, and, and as I said, uh, you know, two hours is about as long as anybody can put up with that stuff. And of course, right. the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese had all the time in the world. You know, also labor was not one of their problems. They're they're, they're like. Uh, they're like ants uh, going down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I mean, they just keep on going, you know. And, and uh, they had plenty of labor, and they had plenty of time. And these folks, I mean, they're in, you know, th- to give you an example, uh, you know, the uh, the Chinese uh, came across, I, well, I don't know, it was the Yalu River or the 38th Parallel in Korea mm-hmm. with 250,000 troops. It took us three years to push them back. After the Vietnam yeah. War was over, after the North Vietnamese or the Vietnamese beat us, and after they beat the French as well, two colonial powers, uh, somewhere I think it was about 1978, the Chinese came across the the North Vietnam northern border with a quarter million troops. <laughs> it only took the North Vietnamese about three weeks to kick the Chinese out. Uh, these these folks have been fighting for for so long, and also when it comes to uh, getting information, for, I mean they know. The point, you're absolutely right. Uh, at, at some point, uh, when they're putting uh, put you in the ropes and you know, I'll say it, torture. Although I hate to use that word because uh, I don't, I, I just have a hard time saying that's what they did to me. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, they, they they know the point at which the information becomes unreliable, mm-hmm. and they will take you up to that point and they will hold you there. You can't pass out. You can't die. You're just—I mean—it's like white hot barbed wire going through your uh, mm-hmm. going through your joints. And what was kind of distressing for me was that you know when we invaded what was Afghanistan and and uh, Iraq uh, back in 2003. Well, as of as of uh, 2004, we had killed 108 
prisoners in our custody, you know, are the Iraqis and the Afghans. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I read some of that stuff. And it's like the people we have doing this stuff, they're just they're amateurs. They don't know how to do this stuff without killing people or maiming them. You know, the Vietnamese have been doing this stuff for 3,000 years. They know exactly what they were doing, and they know it. Even though it seemed real primitive, uh, they, they really had it down. What, what do you think that um, the North Vietnamese, because they've been so uh, good at, you know, they fought off the French, they fought off the U.S., they fought off the Chinese. What is it that has, what is the, the concept that is galvanizing them to be so vociferous in the defense of their belief? And what is that belief? Well, when they were fighting us, it was they were saying it was nationalism. They just wanted to unify the country, the country. And you know, you had North Vietnam, which was the industrial part. You had South Vietnam, which was the agricultural part. Uh, each one separately was kind of uh, not self, you know, sustaining. But uh, if you combine the two, then then they were a complete unit, and they could, uh, you know, that they could survive uh, quite well. Uh, I would have to say, even though I'm not a great fan of nationalism, because uh, if you look back in history, uh, you know, nationalism like uh, religion uh, uh, has killed a lot of people in, in yeah. the history of the world. And uh, But I think in this particular war, uh, their desire to, to be one nation uh, uh, overcame uh, all that other stuff. And it certainly overcame the French, and it overcame us. What um, also, also also I, I had a friend when I when I was, when I was practicing law down there in Kissimmee, Florida, uh, where uh, Disney World is. <laughs> one of my friends, he, he was a legendary uh, defense attorney. He says there's some people in this world, and he mentioned Hungary, he mentioned Vietnam. He says they were just put there <laughs> by the Lord to get beat up by other people. And that certainly seems like uh, that was true with the Vietnamese. I mean, they're they're always fighting somebody. Now, how you know you're a pretty circumspect guy, circumspect guy, and what you uh, thoughtful, mindful, and um, it seems like you know when you were in that situation, you were also as a young man. You, I think you were like 23. Um, it seemed like you were a pretty circumspect guy at the time. And what I found the most fascinating part of your book is that you seem to have a tougher time with your comrades and all of the internal politics than you did with your captors, where it was a little more cut and dry. Talk to us a little bit in the big picture about that. Uh, Yes, I will do that. Uh, The North Vietnamese and I, I mean, it was real quick. After I got wrapped up a couple times, uh, I mean, they knew that I knew that they knew that I knew that if they wanted me to do or say something, uh, they could they, they, they could make me do it. And once we came to that understanding, they just left me alone. Uh, living with other roommates, the, I described my experience, you know, the first uh, two years, the first two months was a nightmare. The last three years was a country club. Uh, the two and a half years in between was like law school, uh, your basic miserable existence. But uh, when you're living, uh, and, and after the, you know, I was alone until I think I got my first roommate on the 1st of June. So I've been up there about three weeks. And, uh, you know, we were for the most part in a 12 by 12, 15 by 15 foot room with uh, no ventilation, no windows, no card games. 
Uh, we were in that room with uh, two or three other roommates. Uh, we'd only get out maybe an hour a day to wash ourselves and to wash the dishes and make coal balls. Uh, unbelievable boredom. I mean, you know, you, you go into some places, uh, like when I give my talks, uh, you look up on the ceiling and there'll be like squares on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. I counted squares eight, eight to 14 hours a day. If I could have counted them 24 hours a day, I would have done it. It's just unbelievable boredom. And, uh, you know, uh, human interaction, in fact, it was kind of funny. I said, you know, if I can, if I can get along with these people uh, in this situation, I mean, you know, living with a w- woman is, is going to be easy. <laughs> well, that was the that was the wrong answer. <laughs> I came home and my wife was still there. God bless her. The divorce rate was like 85% uh, a year and a half after we came home on November 1974. And, uh, you know, we tried to make it go, but we argued so much. We had a 70 pound Doberman pincher that would uh, hide behind the, uh, the sofa Yikes. while we argued. And, and at the time, you know, we had a two and a four year old boy and, and, and you know, I, I, I grew up in a pretty contentious family and I just didn't want my children to go through that. So uh, we agreed to, uh, to, to, you know, to separate uh, after about five years. But, yeah, it's the human interaction that, that uh, uh, that's a sight to behold. You know, I mean, we'd sit, be sitting there and after about three months, we know every I mean, I live with these people longer than I live with my wife, you know. And, uh, well, let's have conversation number 23, you know, <laughs> it was just, and also, it was just I think crazy. You, you had to also for the, uh, you know, benefit of the audience, a lot of times you couldn't just talk to each other. You had to do, there was all this complicated different codes and stuff to, uh, pass information down the line. And then you had to deal with, uh, the, uh, you know, the pecking order of the different ranks and the personalities and, and uh, it sounded like it was a real challenge to like, you know, you're captured and then you have to deal with somebody who's a real jerk who happens to have a higher rank than you and they don't know what they're doing. And it's it's like I always contend that my biggest struggles in business have always been dealing with, you know, the solving the business problem is easy. Getting it through the system has always been the <laughs> toughest. And it sounds like it's exactly what your situation was where, you know, the people were a pain in the neck and, uh and I could totally relate to that as I read your book. So t- talk to us a little bit about how you realize that, wow, you know, my real problem is the guys I'm with. It's not really the captors because I know what they are. I know who they are. With the guys I'm with, I have to deal with all these different politics and personalities. Yeah, well, I had a particularly bad experience. I had to live with a guy that was a graduate of the United States Naval Academy. And... uh, uh you know, he thought he knew everything, and he was self-righteous and all that kind of stuff. And the truth of the matter is he he didn't know anything, you know. But uh, that aside, uh, yeah, the the first, uh, you know, for about the first three years, we're in those rooms. And it was just trying to get along with people, you know. And it was boring. Mm-hmm. And sure. then, of course, you know. How big were the rooms? Just, to, just to, like, how big yeah. was the the holding facility that you were in, you know, your individual rooms? So just to well, the individual the room audience. was like, yeah, the individual room was 12 by 12 feet or 15 by 15 feet, you know, mm-hmm. and then that, that, that was our life. But, you know, and what after, was inside uh, of it? After, what was it? Describe it a little more. The inside? Yeah. It was just a room. I mean, with no windows, uh, no vents, uh, we would, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, nothing. I mean, no cards, uh, uh, no chess, no checkers, uh you just talking to each other. We, we got two meals a day at the time, uh, either a, a huge bowl of rice, which I could never finish, 
because I was like, I'm a little guy, I'm five foot six. And uh, a bowl of rice or, uh, believe it or not, a loaf of French bread, sometimes it was actually hot, sometimes it was stale, you know. And then Mm -hmm. we had a a bowl of soup. It was uh, bamboo soup in the uh, summertime, cabbage soup in the wintertime. And then we had a side plate, which was uh, like rutabaga in the wintertime. I'm sorry, turnips in the wintertime. And then in the summertime, we'd either have uh, orange or uh, green squash. but then after, uh, I believe, uh, the floodgate, Johnson stopped the bombing in, 19, in the fall of 1968, uh, presumably to help Humphrey get elected, which didn't work. When he stopped the bombing, all the rope stuff, all the, all the physical stuff stopped. We we're still in those lousy little rooms, but they weren't putting us in the ropes, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there, was no, there was no threat of ropes. And then uh, in July of 1970, the floodgates opened. They put us in compounds. And that was pretty good. Uh, we're outside six or seven hours a day, two baths a day, playing ping pong. Uh, we're, we're writing letters uh, every month. I hadn't wrote a letter for for uh, like three years, but we started writing letters every month, getting packages every other month. We had chess checkers, uh, Monopoly, you know, all that stuff. And that lasted for four months till they had the Sante raid, and then they rushed us all back downtown again. Uh, and this time I was in a, in a room with 50 people, but it was like a, a gymnasium, you know, like 60 mm-hmm. by 30. It was, but, but we're still getting outside twice a day, two baths a day. We're still getting packages and letters from home and all that stuff. But that was when I started uh, seeing uh, 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 the result of our leadership, uh, because up until that point, I'd had absolutely no no advice from leaders. The only thing I ever heard from for three years was Colonel Robinson Reisner, who died, I think, uh, last year or the year before. Uh, someone asked him, well, how, how, much, how much should we take this rope trick? And he says, he, he says, take it as much as you can, but don't take it to the point of permanent physical damage. That was excellent advice. Mm-hmm. But that's the only advice I'd ever received. All the other stuff, we're on our own. We're on our own. I mean, I learned how to deal with the Vietnamese, how to put up with the ropes and, and, and what information to give and what not to give, you know. Well, all of a sudden, they put us all together back downtown in November of 1970, and it was like the leaders, and there was about 30 of them, you know. We're talking uh, lieutenant colonels and above. Uh, we had four full colonels. And, and the ones at the top really weren't the problem. Flynn, Gaddis, uh, Wynn, those guys. The problem was the Reisners and the, uh, the Stockdales, Admiral Stockdale. He, he died a, a while back as well. But these guys were like the upper middle management. Everything had to go through them before it got to the, to the big four, and then everything that came down from the, from the big four had to go through these guys. And, you know, if you're a child playing the game telephone, what goes in one mm-hmm. end doesn't come out the same at the other end. Right. And we had, to deal, we had to deal with that. But it became pretty apparent to me because we all of a sudden started getting directives. We had so many directives. We had to have about six or seven people in each room to memorize this stuff, you know, that was coming down from the head shed. And the thought that ran through my mind was, you know, these guys think we're going home. And a lot of people thought we were going home. This is after the Sante raid. Right. And uh, they looked around and says, you know, what have we done for the last six years? And, well, they hadn't done anything. So now they're, they're making up for, uh, for lost time and they're checking their six. 
And that was, I believe, in January, uh, November 70 was the Sante Raid. January 71, we're all downtown, and they formed the 4th uh, Allied POW Wing. And that's when all these memorandums and directives and stuff come down. Mm-hmm. But they had to have something to tell their bosses when they came home. Hey, this is what we did, man. We had this 4th Allied POW Wing, and, and we had all these orders and directives. And, you know, and it was it was all BS. Excuse my French, mm-hmm. you know. Because because all they did with those directives was they codified everything we'd already done on our own without any guidance. So and that uh, was that was that was that was kind of an eye opener for me. Now six years is a long time. Um, what was you? Let's say you're there two years. What was your expectation for how long you'd be there? And then how did you find out when it was time for you to be released? Uh, in fact, that was the thing that scared me the most. I didn't have a clue. Uh, the first six months, I mean, I, you know, I, I just, you know, when am I going home? When am I going home? Uh, but I think the scaredest I was, was I'd been up there about a year and Everett Alvarez was the first Navy pilot shot down in August of 64. So he was up there like four years, you know, I've been up there a year and one night I'm thinking I'm under my mosquito net. I'm thinking, you know, Robert, you can hack this. You can hack this for five more years. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that scared wow. the, just that mm-hmm. thought scared the snot out of me. You know, my biggest concern was I'd be 50, I, you know, after the first six months, uh, I didn't think that uh, they would kill us. Uh, uh, my, my, my third roommate, uh, major Dick Vogel, uh, when him and I and Mike are there at the, at the first, uh, at the plantation there in the summer of 70, uh, a summer of 67, right after I got shot down or, right after I went down, he says, you know, any moment now those doors could open, they could put a 50 caliber machine gun there and gun us down, you know, and that was kind of the mindset for about the first six months. But after that, my biggest concern is I'd be 50 years old when I came home. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know there was another part of that question. I forgot it. Uh, How did you, uh, how did you find out you were being released and how'd you feel about that? Exactly. In the, Spring of 1972, uh, we, we started bombing North Vietnam again. I think that was Nixon's program. And uh, the North Vietnamese, they thought Hanoi was gone. And so what they did, they took about half of us at the time. It was about 200 of us. And they put us in the back of some trucks, and we went up. Uh, it took us about uh, four. It took us about a day to get uh, 12 miles south of the Chinese border. It was northwest of Hanoi. And uh, they told us when they when we got there, it says, "Look, you guys are not going to go back to Hanoi until the war is over, and then you're only going to go back for processing." Mm-hmm. So we're up there. And I was living at the time uh, with Eddie Meckenbeyer in, uh, I think, the first part of January 1973. And uh, we hear a truck come in, so I get up on Eddie's shoulders, and and we did have a vent that was very high. You know, you can look out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I says, Eddie, there's a truck. I go, Eddie, there's there's another truck. Eddie, there's four trucks. Eddie, there's eight trucks now. What kind of what kind of trucks? uh, These were. Uh, I'm going to say maybe one or two ton trucks, you know, but, but they, uh, they were had, for, from uh, who, from whose trucks. That's what I mean. They were the, Oh, they were the, the Vietnamese. They were the same trucks that they were hauling supplies into the South. In. Okay. Same type of truck. Uh, 
Uh, you know, they had, they, they, they just had a, a, a flatbed in the back. Well, actually, mm-hmm. no, they, they had they had fences around there. They, they could fit. Uh, well, they fit 200 of us in the 14 trucks. So you know, you can figure the numbers out on feel? that one. How did you feel when you realized that? Well, okay, this I, I said, we're getting Eddie, out of here. I says, yeah, I says, Eddie, there's 14 trucks. We're going home. You know, and my stomach turned for about 24 hours. And just to give you a comparison, I came to the Lord uh, not because I was a POW, but when I was going through a separation with my wife, I knew I would have to talk to somebody who was either a shrink or, or a minister. And I remembered, even though I wasn't here, that Thomas Eagleton was, uh, I think, McGovern's running mate, and he went to right. see a psychiatrist. And he got mm-hmm. crucified. I said, well, I'm not going to go see this. I'm going to talk to someone that doesn't write stuff down. you know." So I talked to a minister. But, uh, you know, it took me uh, – I was pretty dense uh, on that stuff. Uh, he handed me the book of John, and I read it. didn't mean anything to me. This would have been in 1978. And then I'm thinking uh, probably about 1990, I'm finishing up law school. My dad, I think, died or was getting ready to die. And all of a sudden, the light came on, and uh, I think my stomach churned for about 30 days, you know, when I realized that, that, you know, you can forgive other people, but you can't forgive yourself. And, uh, you know, I wrote about it in my book. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it just uh, – anyway, but that was, that was the comparison. Uh, my stomach churned for 24 hours when I thought I was coming home. And when the, when, when the light came on uh, – uh, with the Lord, uh, my stomach turned for about a week, or I'm sorry, about a month. Now, why, why did why did your stomach turn when you and what what flipped the switch to be for your spirituality, and then why did it make you physically upset? Uh, no, it didn't make me physically upset. It was turning. Oh, your stomach turning. Yeah, it, stomach. It, it was just another way of looking. Another instead of looking at, at things from your own personal perspective. Mm-hmm. You know the big guy, the big guy, me. I want uh, mm-hmm. to start to look at it from the from the other side. You know, okay. And that that that's a subconscious thing, you know, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But it started. I was going to a Bible study there. Really, every time I looked for a job, I went to a Bible study in North Miami. And one of these things was on the book of John, and it was on the Holy Spirit. And uh, it was saying, well, you know, the only thing you need to do to get the Holy Spirit is you need to believe in jesus christ and uh they said there's some people are going to jump on me for this but you don't need to confess your sins and all that you just need to believe you know Mm -hmm. and i went home and about three days later it hit me yeah i got it now you know and i was on my knees uh i mean I, i i forgave everybody that ever did anything bad to me since since i could remember you know and i realized at that point that you know you can't forgive yourself. Only, only somebody outside of you. Only the Lord can forgive you. Uh, and that was huge. I stopped. I think I stopped using the I word. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, people actually started listening to me <laughs> when I was a controller. You know. Now, but do you think that your, but did, did your experience as a POW, was that a driver of your, uh, accepting spirituality? Because from what you're telling me, it sounds like that happened after, after the war. But was the experiences that you went through as a POW, were they subconsciously driving you and pointing you towards that religiously t- tainted direction? 
Yeah, I think I have two things to say. That. Number one, I got through that experience without the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that really puffed my ego. Hey, man, I mean, all these other guys are weak. They had they had to have religion to get through it. You know, I did it on my own. And that mm-hmm. re- that really gave me a big ego, which in the long run was, was not good, okay? But uh, aside from that, I think the POW experience kind of softened me up. You know, living, living with mm-hmm. some of these people kind of softened me up a little bit. Uh, and when I came home and, and then when I went through a divorce, that pretty much put the nail in it. And, and that's really when I started, uh, you know, searching for stuff like that. Now, looking back, um, did you enlist in the in the service? Uh, I did. I was actually uh, the Navy had a great program. Mo- most of your flight programs, you needed to be a college graduate. Mm-hmm. But the Navy had uh, what they call an AVCAD program. If you had two years of college, uh, you could get in. If you were enlisted, you only needed one year of college. If you okay. did well on the flight aptitude, uh, right. well, I found out that the people with two years of college had a score about 30% higher on the flight aptitude than college graduates. But yeah, I was a warrant officer for, I think, all through the flight well, program. And then when I got my wings, I was commissioned as an ensign. Okay. So looking back now after the POW experience and then your other experiences in your personal life, would you enlist again? Uh, <laughs> that's a nasty question. Uh, probably, uh, I'm very proud of what I did. And, 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 you know, I, I wanted to fly. I did not want to go to war. My father flew the hump in world war two. My uncle Jean, who is my mother's brother up in Canada, uh, Arshamba was their name. Uh, he flew for the Royal Canadian air force in world war two. He flew for the British in world war two. And uh, so there's aviation is like my father flew the hump. So there's like aviation. I just wanted to fly airplanes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I signed up to fly the airplanes. And, oh, by the way, uh, we got this war that's getting ready to crank up. We're going to send you over there. And it was sort of like, well, you know, I'm really not. In fact, my first cruise, I was all wired, man. I really thought I was I was on top of it. You know, uh, my first cruise, I survived that on the USS Enterprise. And then uh, I got married in between cruises. And then my second cruise was never like the first one because I was married. And the thought when I was on the Hancock just before I got bagged was, man, what are you doing over here? I mean, you you can get hurt, you know. But I'm going to be honest with you. I've never encouraged. I've got two sons. I've never encouraged any of them to uh, join the service. Uh, The way I look at it now is, in in fact, when I was talking to the minister, uh, after when, when I was going through a, a separation with my wife, uh, he told me, he says, you're a conscientious objector. You know, I had no, I had no idea of that, but he says, you're a conscientious objector. My feeling now is, you know, we've been fighting. We fought the revolutionary war, the civil war, world war one, world war two, Korea, Vietnam. Uh, look, look where we are now. And you know, we're more unsafe now than we've ever been. So my question is, <laughs> what good is all this fighting done? You know, and that's that's sort of where I am now. I have a I have a six grandchildren, uh, uh, three grandsons and three uh, granddaughters. One of my grandsons is a celiac, which means he can't eat gluten, uh, which means he's draft proof in, in the United States. He's not going to get drafted into the army. Uh, if he was in Israel, on the other hand. 
he would he could get drafted because the Israelis, uh, their culinary procedures with their kosher food and all that, they can deal with celiacs uh, in mm-hmm. the army, but the United States can't. You know, so to be honest, I'm kind of happy that he's a celiac. <laughs> you know, I don't know how this is going to go with your audience, but uh, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I just I don't, and a lot of this stuff is so political. You know, and we could get into that. It would take you know, we could take a month of Sundays to talk about that, mm-hmm. like that Gulf War. I think even Greenspan admitted uh, that the uh, when Bush invaded uh, uh, 203, says all about the oil. You know, one of my best friends who has since died graduated from the United States Air Force Academy. I lived with him for a couple of years in Vietnam, and they sent him right to Georgetown to get a master's in international relations. And he says, "Look," he says, uh, "people will not die for money." Or material things, but if you tell them that that the uh, you know that the Chinese are, or that the Japanese are baby killers, or or or, or, or that the communists are, or, or anti-religion or whatever, you know, uh, they'll fight for something like that. But but you know, to put another television in the house or another car in the garage, people will not fight for money. So so you've got to you you, you got to frame it in a way that it is a almost a spiritual uh, 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 crusade, uh, right? Crusade, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Perfect word. Listen, you're, uh, Robert, thank you so much for being on Guys Guys Radio. Um, You know, you're an American hero, and I I love how authentic you are, and you're not sugarcoating anything, and you're you're showing us and articulates us what it's like to be a man and, uh, you know, giving stuff up, going through the process, understanding the politics, the follies of war, all of that stuff. You went through it. So, you know, you are a true hero. So I really have a lot of respect for you. And uh, I want to thank you for being on Guy Guys Radio. It's been great. I want you to, if you could, please tell everybody where they can find out more, where they can get your book, Unexpected Prisoner, Memoir of a Vietnam POW, and where they can learn more about you. Uh, yes, well, I have a website, www.robertweidman.com. If you Google uh, Weidman Unexpected Prisoner, I'll come up on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Facebook, uh, Pinterest, Goodreads, a bunch of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And those are probably the uh, – and also my book is, is on my website. Uh, that right. would, uh, the, big one, uh, the big one for the book is uh, uh, Weidman Unexpected Prisoner and just hit the – Hit, hit Amazon. You can get a Kindle version. You can get uh, the paperback version. And actually, if you look, if you look at the, the reviews, they're all five stars. I had to do some blogs a few weeks back. Mm-hmm. One of the questions was, well, you know, writers have huge egos. How will you deal with, with a negative review? And my answer was, was, I don't know. I've never had one. They've all been five stars. <laughs> you know. Good for you. <laughs> But uh, what really, what really, what really made me happy about this book is the people that seem to really like it are the infantry. Mm-hmm. And as you know, in any war, the infantry—they uh, bear the brunt of the battle. They're on the yep. ground. They're, you know, and it, it just—it can be terrible. But it seems that the infantry people really like my book, and, and I've got—I got a bunch of testimonials inside the book, uh, just just behind the front cover. And then if you go on Amazon, I think there's about 27 uh, 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 from people who, who have bought my book. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that, that means a lot to me that the infantry people like my book. Because well, normally, gonna... it, yeah, the infantry thinks us aviators, and we just go over there, we're 10,000 feet, we push a button, and we go back to the ship. And, you mm-hmm. know, for the most part, they're right. <laughs> 
Well, I'm going to give the book to my dad. He was a medic in World War II, and uh, he oh, said that's, uh, that's a you know, he was in the platoon uh, in the company, and they just assigned stuff. They said, you're this, you're that, and you're the medic. Yep. And they, he had very yep. limited training and like, go get him. And uh, I said, did you wear the cross, you know, the red cross thing on your helmet? And he said, are you kidding me? That would, that would have been a target. <laughs> I know. Exactly. So, uh, and I'm going to give him this medics. book. And I'm, yeah. That's, uh, uh, so anyhow, I want to thank you again. Uh, you're a wonderful person. And uh, I learned a lot from reading your book about the human condition and uh, you're an inspiration. So uh, best of luck with this. And it's been my pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. And thank you again so much for being my guest on Guys Guys Radio because you're a real you're a real guys guy and you're a real man. And back at you, I want to thank you for having me on. It's been an honor. All right. Okay. Well, happy Thanksgiving, Robert. And uh, go Broncos, I guess, right? Uh, Exactly. And uh, (laughs) bless you. Have a great one. All right. Be well. Thanks so much. Okay, folks. That's our show. Our special guest again, Robert Weidman, POW author from the Vietnam Vietnam War. Unexpected Prisoner is the book. And uh, what a story it is. So, um we are now on to uh, the Thanksgiving week, and uh, we're going to be back next Wednesday, uh, November 30th. And our special guest is Miss Sheila Sheldon, and she is a channeler. And I'm going to be in touch with her between now and then. I'm going to see if I can get her to channel during the show, and uh, we'll see what happens with that. But in any case, I wish you all uh, the best uh, wishes for this Thanksgiving and uh, love to you and all your families. And thanks for making Guys Guys Radio what it is today. So remember that uh, when you think about it, remember, Guys Guys, finish first. <laughs>